This is episode 426 of the AWS podcast, released on February 21st, 2021. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Leisure here with you. Great to have you back, and I'm joined by a special guest. I'm joined by Arturo Hinojosa, who is Principal Product Manager here at Amazon. Welcome to the podcast, Arturo. Thank you, Simon. Excited to be here. Glad to have you on, because you are going to talk to us about something very interesting. You're going to talk about Amazon key spaces for Apache Cassandra. And so before we get into the, the guts of what this service is and what it does for our customers, let's take a step back for something that probably a lot of people have maybe heard of, some have probably used as well. What is Apache Cassandra? So Apache Cassandra is an open source, non-relational database that uh, is really popular with developers for large scale applications that require really, really fast read and write performance, right? Like if you are keeping track of all the messages on a social media platform or all of the uh, the items you would buy an e-commerce site or like, you know, all of the users on your, uh, on your write sharing application, right? You're talking about millions and millions of data points and people doing all sorts of activity really, really fast. So you need something that can scale to those sort of like internet scale volumes. And Cassandra was really one of the very first open source products that did that. Uh, you know, it's actually based on a, a, a white paper we actually wrote here at, at Amazon called the Dynamo white paper, which sort of talks about some of the very large scale non-natural databases we've used internally, you know, for, for as part of Amazon.com. So, you know, a lot of oh, some developers have took that open source that sort of came up with the uh, Apache Cassandra product. Now, one of the interesting things about Cassandra is even though it is really super powerful and gives you all this great performance, customers have told us there's a lot of challenges getting that performance and scalability. First and foremost, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And Cassandra can just be uh, you know, really, really difficult to tune and manage, right, if you don't know what you're doing. It requires really, really specialized expertise and a deep understanding about how to tune the Cassandra software, all the underlying infrastructure, heat management, Java garbage collection. I mean, you really have to know what you're doing to get sort of the best of that performance out of Cassandra. In addition, upgrades can be really hard. We've talked to a lot of customers that were running an older version of Cassandra, some like Cassandra version 2.0. They tried to go to Cassandra 3, but you know, some node in the cluster started misbehaving. So they just sort of scrapped the project and stayed on two. And you know, as, as the folks in the community know, you know, Cassandra 4 is right around the corner. So now these folks are freaking out, they're gonna be two major versions behind. In addition, doing things like scaling your cluster up and down can be really, really difficult. As a result, a lot of customers have their, their cluster size for peak load, right? You're basically talking about a major sporting event, you know, New Year's Eve, a major holiday shopping day. Your cluster size for that load pretty much Tuesday, 4 in the morning, where traffic is going to be much less, right? So you still have all that extra capacity you're not using. In addition, Cassandra, because it's an open source product, you know, got all these really neat features, but it's missing some enterprise management features such as you know, backup and encryption, right? So if you're going to run a mission critical workload, customers have to write up a lot of their own tooling customizations to get those sort of really important features. You know, and a lot of this is the motivation for behind Amazon Keyspace. Right? A lot of customers told us, hey, you know, we love Cassandra, we love the SQL API. You know, it, it's, it's got a really nice you know, familiar feel if I've got a, a, non, uh, a relational background, but it's just really, really hard to manage at scale. AWS, can you help us run our workloads more easily? And that's fair enough because it is a really amazing piece of software. I mean, it powers a lot of web-based applications and tools that we probably all use every day. And, uh, and, and you're right, it is, it is its own domain. So there's, there's ways to use it from a developer standpoint and also a huge amount of infrastructure overhead to get it running really well and running right and keeping it running right. So talk to us about Amazon Key Spaces 
for Apache Cassandra and what it is and how it's different? Because I think maybe, you know, a lot of people might have a, a mental model of, uh, of RDS, the way we sort of do that for a lot of different database engines. And this is different. So help us understand that. When we started, we're looking at, you know, what the offering should look like. Right? How can we help customers run Cassandra workloads more easily? You know, we consider sort of the RDS model, but at the end of the day, that would have just left the developer with all of those things which make Cassandra hard to manage, right? From a, at the application, there are things like compaction and, and tombstoning, you know, things, because Cassandra, one of the things that makes it so powerful is that it exposes a lot of those knobs to the developers, but then you're responsible for managing those knobs, right? So we said, right, let's think about the problem in a different way. What, what, what really do customers want? We heard a lot of customers tell us like, hey, you know, I kind of want something that like, you know, looks like, you know, like DynamoDB, for example, serverless and, and super scalable, but I want it to work with my CQL code and I want it to be, you know, kind of more Cassandra-like, right? So that was the motivation. That was the vision. So, okay, cool. Amazon Keyspaces, it's our new Cassandra compatible database service. We took the 3.11 version of Cassandra and we modified it so we could run it as a serverless, fully managed offering, which has some really, really powerful benefits for customers. One, because it's built on Cassandra, it's compatible with CQL, the Cassandra query language, where you can use your existing CQL application code, your Cassandra drivers, all those developer tools, and bring them right with you to key spaces. Secondly, Key spaces is fully managed and serverless, right? So data stored and fully managed and encrypted storage that's replicated three times and across multiple AWS AZs. So you get that really nice high availability and durability of storage. And because you're sort of taking a fundamentally different approach to storage, we eliminated a lot of the management burden for developers, such as like, hey, managing tombstones, compaction strategies, garbage cleanup, all those things go away and become part of the managed service. That's a big deal because, you know, if, if I think about the customers I've worked with around Cassandra implementations, they spend a huge amount of time on their servers, getting the size right, getting the right amount of memory, the, the type of local I.O. they want to run, SSDs. There's, there's a whole bunch of complexity there that, that just doesn't exist in this model. Right on. I mean, it, it's, you know, you have to pretty much spend sessions and sessions at these Cassandra conferences talking about heat management and like bloom filters and like, you know, they may sound cool to some folks, right? but at the end of the day, when you're trying to write an application that's, you know, trying to do like a ride share thing or some other sort of, you know, like a sharing economy application, like you're not thinking about bloom filters, you're thinking about your customers, what your application logic is, how you can build that efficiency and performance and scalability. So, you know, the less that you're spending talking about compaction, the more time you can invest in your application's core differentiators. And I guess related to that, you know, if we're talking about servers and how many servers we need, et cetera, then cost becomes a question. Is that different in this model? Yeah. So as opposed to sort of spinning up instances with key spaces, it's serverless, right? So you're really only built for the resources that you use. So you don't have to over-provision storage for compaction or data, you know, you know all that sort of stuff, right? And that's all basically as you use it, as you store more data, that's what you, that's when you pay for it, right? And I think what's really cool about this is when you look at this on the read-write side, right? So there's really two dimensions to serverless billing. One is storage, and the other is how you sort of pay for the reason for your applications perform. And Keyspaces gives customers two different options for throughput based on their, their workload and, and how much they know about it, right? So the first is on-demand. And on-demand capacity is fantastic for new workloads or workloads that are very spiky. You're basically paying based on the actual reason rights that your applications perform. We can scale up pretty much instantly, right? You can double the load on your table every 30 minutes. And when that load goes back down, right? When that when that peak traffic is done, we automatically scale your read-write capacity down. So you don't need to worry about, you know, like paying for excess capacity you're not using. Now, if you do know a little bit about your workload, right? If it's a little more predictable, something you've been running for a while, you can also choose to use provision capacity with auto-scaling. And this one is really, really cool too. 
you essentially just tell us, hey, like I expect my traffic to be sort of within, you know, these two guardrails. And we basically adjust your capacity up and down within those settings based on the actual load in your application, right? Because you sort of give us this signal about what your min and max are, we're able to manage our infrastructure a little more efficiently and pass those savings on to you. So provision capacity gives you a way of sort of optimizing the price of throughput by sharing your capacity requirements with us upfront. That's really nice. So you can really tune if you want to, or you can just let it run itself. So you don't have to kind of manage that world. Now, what about in terms of, you know, you mentioned a little bit about replication and availability, and that's a, a key part of design considerations for any Cassandra database. How do keyspace databases handle that? Yeah. So as I talked about, you know, we basically store your data on, you know, fully managed encrypted storage that's replicated three times across multiple AWS availability zones. So you get that really high availability. We also recently released a, a new backup and restore feature called Pitter or Point in Time Recovery, which I'll talk more about later because it's, it's super, super cool. But, you know, like you basically get really nice availability features. We also offer a 4 nines SLA within an, within an AWS region. So you can sort of have that confidence and that trust that your data is going to be there whenever you go to read or write it. And also, I know, uh, one thing that a lot of customers look for is the capability of uh, AWS Private Link, so they can connect from their VPC directly to the service without any uh, transitive network outside of their VPC. Does Keyspaces support that? Yeah, so Keyspaces does support Private Link, so you can connect your resources, whether EC2 or containers, or whatever, and in your VPC, and just connect those right up to Keyspaces using Private Link. You know, security is also very top of mind for us as we're building the service. So you also have you know data encrypted using Keys or an AWS KMS. You can manage access to individual key space and tables using AWS IAM. And this is actually one of the, the really cool things we worked on to digress for a second, right? So, you know, one of the things that when we first released the service, customers said, hey, like, you know, we wanted to have this very Cassandra native way of doing authentication. So because Cassandra has a username and password, we released these things called server-specific credentials, right? It's basically a password you can associate with a particular IAM user for a specific service. You can't use them for any other service and no other user can, can use them, right? It's, it's sort of limit the blast rate of these credentials. But almost immediately customers are going, hey, that's that's cool. But one of the things I love about AWS is short-term credentials, right? You being able to use IAM roles, like that totally changes the auth models to use roles to manage access to resources. So Customers today can key spaces use roles. So one of the very first things we do is we actually open source an authentication plugin for Cassandra drivers, which you can download on GitHub, which basically lets you manage access to your key spaces resources using things like IAM roles and federated identities as well as IAM users. So you can use what you want, which makes sense. Now you you, you teased a little bit of a, a new capability, point in time recovery. And if we think about databases, you know, databases are a great example of putting your eggs in a single basket, making sure you watch that basket very carefully. And databases are great at managing data and collating and reporting and all that good stuff that we like. But when things go bad, <laughs> they go bad at scale as well. <laughs> like, how do I get my data back? How do I roll back to that you know, point in time that it, I knew the world was good and now the world is bad? So, so tell us about this particular capability. Yeah, Pitter is like one of the coolest features. You know, we think of it as magic, right? Basically, it's something we launched uh, on July 9th. It, it enables you to restore your table to any second in time in the previous 35 days, right? So it's good if you're protecting your data against accidental reads and writes. You know, for example, if someone deletes a table by mistake or loads a bunch of bad data, with Pitter, you can actually restore your table to the second time before that mistake happened, right? You know, it's sort of like my, my undo button uh, for my database. So, so you said that's any second in time. So so that's the granularities like to, to the second within the last 35 days. Yeah. That is cool. 
<laughs> and it's completely consistent within the database, right? It's like even if you were to actually learn this earlier this week, when you sort of do this with a with a database you with your own tooling, I think the phrase my engineer called it like a sweep. Like you basically take a sweep of your table. So if a very big table, you're basically seeing stuff as it happens as that that sort of scan executes, right? So you might see some divergence with Pitter. It's a completely consistent snapshot of your entire database table as it had existed in that point in time. So it's it, it's a much more consistent backup than doing doing backups yourself. That is very cool. And what about restoring? So does it restore over the existing database or, or what happens there? No, yeah, it's a good question. And customers sometimes will ask us why we did it this way, right? So we actually restore your table data to a new table within your account. And because in the reality, most customers do what I like to call a, a restore and repair process with Pitter. So, you know, yeah, there's the case we delete the whole table, but oftentimes you just sort of corrupted a few records. So in order to maintain your existing table availability, what most customers do is restore the table to, to new table and then copy those corrupted rows into the original table, right? That saves you having to rename the table or take an availability hit in your, in, your, in your application to do that swap over to the table, uh, to the new table. And so how do customers get started if they want to have a go at key spaces? Really easy, right? So even if you've never used the key spaces, we provide you a step-by-step guide in our console that walks you through creating your first key space, your first table, and then adding some data to that table and querying it from the console. It, it, it's really easy. At every step that you take, we also show you all of the SQL commands that we're running. So if you want to take your own Cassandra drivers and tooling and run that tutorial yourself, that's okay. In fact, if you've got a bunch of Cassandra code, if you've been using Cassandra for like a decade, getting started with key spaces is just as easy as swapping out in your driver configuration, the URL for a cluster with the key spaces service endpoint. Key spaces is available in, in 18 AWS regions across the Americas and in Asia Pacific today. So you just, and you can look up the service endpoints feature on the regions in our documentation. And what about free trials or the ability to get started just to put your toe in the water? What do we offer there? Yeah, a pretty generous feature. So you get up to 30 million on-demand reads and on-demand writes and a gigabyte of storage per month for your first three months. So no reason not to have a bit of uh, an explore. Now, what about customers who who are you know existing Cassandra users? They're familiar with it, but they're looking at this technology and going, mm, "This is this could be interesting. I might want to move across to that." How easy or how hard is it to to get across? You know, we try to make it as easy as we can. I think this is one place where we're going to continue to iterate and improve. But, you know, if you've got a, a large cluster day with a bunch of data, because KeySpaces is SQL compatible, you can use tools such as SQL SH or the, the Cassandra query language shell to export your data from your cluster into a bunch of CSV files and then use the SQL SH copy the command to load that data right into KeySpaces. In fact, we have a great blog post on how to tune SQL SH to perform large imports and take advantage of, of KeySpaces sort of serverless characteristics and sort of like, you know, load balancing across or across connections and all that sort of good stuff. And you talked a bit about some of those open source authentication plugins earlier on. Can you just help us understand a little bit more about, you know, what's the intent of those? I mean, they're, they're going into the community, so we obviously expect them to, to grow and change as people have different demands of them. What, where, where do you see it um, fitting in? The plugins really enable customers to, you know, use short-term credentials with key spaces, right? You know, we want to be great open source citizens in the Cassandra community. So we open source the plugins, the client-side plugins already, and we have plans to actually release a server-side plugin as well. So you'd be able to use, for example, the plugins with IAM roles to manage access to your Apache Cassandra clusters running on EC2 or ECS. So uh, this is one of those things where we think we can be good community contributors and sort of help raise the bar and developer experience and security tools uh, for, for all Cassandra customers over time. So one of the things we're really focused at on, I should say, is, uh, is helping customers have access to the right database for the job they're trying to do. 
if, if I'm sort of using my ready reckoner of where different application workloads and, and problem domains fit, what kind of problems or systems fit well into the, the key spaces capability? Where, where do I find it sort of just goes, yep, that's, that's the right technology to use? <laughs> yeah, so you know we have the, basically the, the world where we look for all this, you know, there's a, a, a the right database for every problem, right? So we have sort of the AWS's purpose-built database portfolio. And the way we should think about key spaces in that portfolio is in the, the wide column category, right? That's sort of what the key standard is sort of wide column database, and the key space sort of fits within that sort of segment. And you know, wide column and key value are, are pretty similar in that they both are designed for massive scale and high performance, right? You know, with key spaces, we you know, one of the nice things about it is provides you single digit millisecond redirect performance at any scale, right? Those, those are things that are hard to do with a relational database, hard to do with, you know, something that's just not purpose-built for those massive scale problems. So, you know, if you are sort of working on maybe like a messaging application, time series data, uh, storing device metadata for an IoT application, all of those sort of massive scale use cases where you expect hundreds of thousands, millions of, of writes per second, that's when you should think about, hey, like, you know, this is where like a wide column database like Keyspace could be a really nice fit. And so you mentioned wide column and you mentioned the Dynamo paper earlier on. So help us understand if we're looking at Keyspaces and we're looking at DynamoDB, for example, what's my gating item in terms of when I choose which technology? So as I mentioned, you know, DynamoDB is a key value database, right? And key value documents and, and key value and wide column are, are very, very similar in terms of the use cases where they're both designed for these massive scale problems. So it's really more about what developer experience do you want, right? You know, with key spaces, you have that very familiar Cassandra query language, which looks a lot like SQL. So you can do your, you know, select star from table queries, right? That's that stuff. If you've got that background, it's really easy to get started with key spaces. You know, key spaces also is really uh, compatible. And this is our design thing, right? Be compatible with the Apache Cassandra project. So you'll, we're, we're always sort of driving to maintain compatibility, offer the same feature set as, as the Apache Cassandra product. Uh, you know, DynamoDB is, is an AWS service. You know, we're able to innovate that one a little more quickly because we sort of we own all the code, right? And if the other day I, I got a feature request for like a like operator, right? You know, for, for strings, you know, we, we can't put that in key space because it's not part of the Cassandra project, but we could put that in DynamoDB, right? Because we have a little more control there. DynamoDB has also been around for a little bit longer, so it has more integrations with a lot of the other AWS services, right? So if you if you also want things like, you know, AWS backup integration, of course, those things will come to key spaces in time, but they are available in DynamoDB today. So, you know, to really net it out, right? If, if you're if your priority is like, hey, I want to use an open source API for this math scale problem, key spaces is a fantastic fit. And if you want sort of the, the service of the deepest AWS integrations and you know you, you that's sort of being innovated on the most quickly, then we say, hey, go check out DynamoDB. And what's the reaction been from from some of the customers you've spoken to when they've looked at key spaces or, or migrated to key spaces? What are some of the, I guess, the big ticket items that they say this is this is really helping? Yeah, you know, it really it, the getting started experience is, is something that most customers are really impressed by. Um, if you sort of think about what it would take to set up a new three-node cluster, right, for a new application in a self-managed world, you have to deploy all that infrastructure, deploy all the all, all that Cassandra code, configure the cluster. So you're talking about maybe like a couple of days or a couple of weeks of work, right? depending on how, how big of an organization you are, or working with your procurement, even get EC2 instances or, or more servers. It's a lot of upfront time before you're writing your first line of CQL. 
Compare that with Keyspace, where you're basically clicking a couple buttons in the console or the few lines of code, and you're immediately setting up resources, driving traffic, and playing around with it, right? And I think customers really, really like that, how quickly it is they get started. It's also the fact that they don't have to do all this upfront sort of, hey, you know, how many is I'm going to need? Well, what if I'm wrong? So I got to be super conservative. They like the fact that they're paying for the resource they actually use instead of having all these idle nodes out there, which are being underutilized uh, and in a self-managed cluster. So again, it's really that, that, that really fast getting started experience and the fact they can right-size their, their, their infrastructure for the application in, in real time. Fantastic. Arturo, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing a little bit more about uh, Amazon Keyspaces. Thanks, Amir. Thank you for having me on. And thanks for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to do that. And until next time, keep on building.